0: Let's open our Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, uh, uh, I've titled this uh, really two lessons together, His cross and our cross. And we're going to look at the first part of it in terms of His cross today and next Sunday looking at our cross. What is, how do those two, and one is a big capital C and the other one is a, a little c, uh, if you're going to compare the two. but last time we looked at this passage and we saw that Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus, we know he was not having an identity crisis, right? Who he is and what he's done is what matters in this life. What matters? What's the most important thing? Jesus, again, asking his disciples who he is. And Peter gives them this great confession that you are the Christ. In verse 16, He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we we looked at and we we understand that meaning of the word the Christ being the anointed one, the answer that we've all been waiting for, the the answer to all the questions of life, the one who would rescue us, the one that would bring the answer. But he wasn't just the Christ, he was also the Son of the living God, he was God the Son, God with us, Emmanuel, And, and Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he said. Now, is that the rock of Peter? No, it's the rock of the confession of Peter and the truth of what Peter was confessing, that Jesus Christ is the rock that we build our lives, our church, and our hope upon. Not on Peter, not on a man. So the question is, for you and for me, he asks you and me, who do you say that he is? What about you? What about me? Do we know who he is? Do we... Are we understanding? And if we're not, we need to, to seek the truth and find the truth and it's delivered, it's revealed here in His Word. So verse 16, we look at uh, Simon Peter talking about who Jesus is. Verse 21 and following, we talk about what Jesus came to do. And then further on in verses 24 and following, we talk about what He asks us to do. What is our response to that? And that again, that's, Uh, We'll get to that half uh, next week. Look at verse 21, though. We pick it up right there. It says that from that time on, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. Notice that word must. There's an emphasis there, isn't there? There's a, a whole focus there, and, and there's a whole kind of a, a turning of Jesus' face towards what he was called to do. This is like huge. We can't, you know, I was going to do the whole section in one, but you know, this is so important. We've we got to focus and look at this. What was he talking about? What was he planning? And why was he planning on doing this? I want you to look with me to Luke chapter 9. There's a bunch of verses we're going to turn to today, so you'll have to turn with me quickly. But Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 has these words. Luke 9, 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I like the way the uh, King James Version puts it. He, he, he set his face. He set his face. He, you know, he knew that was the direction that he needed to go. He set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people, uh, people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. You know, we're going to look at what, what happens with Peter in this passage in Matthew, but it wasn't just Peter, James and John. It wasn't just those disciples. It's you and me as well, where we don't have a clue about so many different things. We don't understand what is it all about. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. This is what it's all about. He set his face for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem. But that was just step one. And Jerusalem, we know Jerusalem was the center of the whole you know, Jewish faith and the, 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 the whole uh, religious setting. But that was where God had desired. God had planned. God had uh, set up for him to go. Not only was he to go to Jerusalem, though, he wasn't good to just go there to be a tourist. But it says he was was to go there and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. The elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, these were the religious ruling body of the day. The chief priests, primarily Sadducees. The scribes or the teachers of the law, primarily Pharisees. And other leaders, these guys that they thought they had it all together, but did they have it at all, but together at all. And you know the story, what happens, how they decide. We've got to put him to death. It says in John chapter 19, it says, and these are just some of the things that he had to suffer before the cross. It says, they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Matthew tells us, then they... That they spit in his face. And they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him. They spit on him. They struck him in the face. They slapped him. Says that he would be mocked. And they did that. Says that he would be rejected. And he did that. They did that to him. But you see, Jesus, now this is way, you know, uh, way before, not a long time, but. But before this was going to happen, Jesus knew all these things were going to happen to him. He knew. None of this was a surprise when he got to Jerusalem and and the way he was treated there. It was not a surprise to him at all. That's why he came. That's why he resolutely set his face, resolutely set to go to Jerusalem because he knew what he had to do. He knew what he would face when he got there. Isaiah 53, the incredible prophecy about These days, in Isaiah 52 and 53, in verse 3, it says, He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. They rejected him in the most horrible fashion. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. But he knew he was going to face that. He would suffer many, many things, but not only that. It says in in Matthew, it says that he must be what. Killed. He must be killed. Let's read it again, verse twenty one, near the end of verse twenty one, chapter sixteen in Matthew, and that he must be killed. He must die. There's no other way around it. You see, there's a necessity of the cross. The necessity of the cross. In Isaiah 53, it says, He took up our infirmities and He carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by his wounds, we were healed. He must be killed. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Why, why was it that he must be killed? What, what was he going to be killed for? Well, I just read it to you out of Isaiah 53. It was for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of all the world. He had to die for sin. If Jesus did not die for sin, there is no hope for mankind. Paul says, excuse me, Peter says in in Acts chapter 2, he says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, he's speaking to this crowd, he says, you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He says, you did this with the help of wicked men, but it was God's set purpose and foreknowledge, right? Isn't that what we've been seeing here? Jesus knew ahead of time. It was his set purpose. It was his plan. We didn't have a clue. Acts chapter 3, he says, You killed the author of life, but God raised him for the dead, and we are witnesses of this. He says that back here in verse 21. He says not only that he must be killed, but he says on the third day be raised to life. On the third day be raised to life. We have the necessity of the cross, but we also have the necessity of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, his death was pointless. His death was useless. He would just be another man like you or me. You and I are all going to die, should the Lord tarry. We will die, we will face death, we will, we will you know, face God at, at one point in time. But Jesus Christ... If he had just died and and, and not risen from the dead, there would be no hope for us. There would be no hope in our our faith would be futile, it says. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, you read the whole chapter, it's all about the resurrection. Very long chapter because it's such a crucial point. But Paul says these words, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You might as well go home. If If he didn't rise from the dead, Preaching is useless and your faith is in vain. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If he didn't die and if he he didn't rise from the dead, we would still be in our sins. We'd have no hope. Hope, no hope for eternal life. But thankfully, it says that God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Interesting thing in Luke chapter 24, it says that the women who went to the tomb, it says they bowed down with their faces, but the men said, why do you look for the living among the dead, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. It says, then they remembered his words. They'd heard those words, they'd heard what he had said, and they go, oh, and but yet they're still looking for him. Again, we looked at that one Easter, how we, you know they were sort of surprised. But yet he'd been telling them all along, I'm going to be crucified. And we see here in Matthew that from that time on, he began, that began to be his message, his single message. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. But I'm going to rise again from the dead. And then when he does rise from the dead, they're kind of surprised. And they said, why are you looking here? This is the wrong place. He's, he's alive. He's risen. Then they remembered his words. He told them ahead of time. He knew what he came for, but the question is, why would he do it? If he was the son of the living God, as Peter said, why would he plan on doing that for you and for me? There's only one answer. There's only one word of an answer, and what is that? Love. Love. He loved us. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There's only one reason that he did that was for love. God came down, Emmanuel with us, because he loved us. Do you know that he loves you? Have you received that love? Do you and I know that that he came and he did that for me and for you? Enter Peter, verse 22. This is the Peter, again, who had this incredible confession back in, in, in verse 16. Verse 22, six verses later. We don't know how much time exactly transpired, but six verses later it says, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, you this shall never happen to you. Jesus used the word must, right, twice in those verse, the verse before. Peter comes along and uses the word never twice. Which one is right? It's incredible, isn't it? Maybe, I don't know, I was thinking about this, but maybe, maybe he thought that the church would be built on him, and it kind of went to his head. And so he was going to kind of give some direction to Jesus, let me help, uh, you You know, you can't, no, never, now, let me show you the way, let me explain to you, let me kind of guide you, you know, I'm, I am going to be, you know, you know, you already told me that I'm going to be the next, or the first, I don't need to use the word right, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe he just wanted to protect Jesus, you know. I'm a big burly fisherman kind of guy. I need to, you know, Jesus, you know, I'll protect you. That's never going to happen. I'll be there to to keep you from any harm that might come your way. Now, to be fair about this, in Luke chapter 18, at a place where they were told the same words by Jesus, it says the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. So, To be fair, he really didn't have the light of understanding of this. He would one day. He certainly would one day. But still, even if you don't understand, you know, to go up to Jesus, you don't understand what he's talking about, to go up to him and and kind of try to take control of him, you know, kind of pull him aside, and, and I'm going to explain to you. Very dangerous ground, I think. He says that you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God, but, you know, I'm Peter. And I, you know, I could, you know, explain a few things to you. John chapter 13, you know what happens there? Jesus came to Simon Peter. You know, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, right? You know the story. We don't need to turn there. He, but he, he came to Simon Peter, and, he, and, and, he, and Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Kind of a similar, similar but a different uh, setting, a different thing that Jesus was doing. But he says, you will understand later, but you won't understand now. But Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. He liked to use that word never. What is that, a hyperbole? Y- you never listen to me. You never get it right. We, you know, we, we go through this in our relationships with, with our spouses, our friends, or whatever. Peter was kind of like that. You shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered to him. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I do wash you, you have no part. You have no, there's no hope for you, Peter, unless I do wash you. And Peter goes, oh, you know, wash all of me then, go for it unless he does go to the cross unless he does rise from the dead there's no hope whatsoever unless he does do those things thank god that Jesus didn't listen to peter if he never went to the cross we would be doing with no hope but but he did go to the cross and we can believe in him and we can have eternal life because he died for our sins and he rose from the dead say, well, I know all that stuff. I've heard all that stuff. Yeah, but is is it a part of your life? Is it it a part of who you are, the cross? It's not just one time. It's it's a part of who we are. It's a part of the meaning of life where we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, gives us help to live this life. Look at uh, Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 23. Jesus turned... (coughs) And said to Peter, I'll think about that, Peter. He says, well, let me take that into consideration and uh, I will get back to you. No, look what he says. These are like strong words, are they not? Get behind me, Satan. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Whoa. Now, what happened here? Did did Peter become Satan? No. Was he demon-possessed? No. But he was acting like Satan, and he was kind of speaking like him, too. They were Peter's words, but the concepts behind them and the ideas behind them were Satan's. One minute, one minute, he's speaking from the Father, right? In verse 16, he had that that great confession and jesus said to him then he says this was not revealed to you by man but by my father in heaven he's speaking words from the father and the next minute he's speaking words from satan like what peter how could you do that but but it isn't it isn't it also true that we do those kinds of things too open mouth insert foot you know, one minute we're saying the you know the most incredible things and we're all so spiritual, we're suing, and the next minute, you know, we get angry, somebody guy cuts us off, and we're, you know, we're saying these things in our car and thinking nobody hears us and oof. I think we should turn to this passage in James, shouldn't we? We should. I think we should. James chapter three, because you know, there's a lesson in this. There's a whole bunch of lessons here, obviously. The main lesson is the cross. But there is another lesson here about the words we use. And in James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. This thing about what we say, what we speak, kind of affects our whole lives. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they hell all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed but no man can tame the tongue, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison this is after the cross and resurrection mind you with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father we're at church we're just praising, we're worshiping we're singing out and then on the way home And with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Wow. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. What happened to Peter? What James is talking about here, he's seen it over and over again. You know, what we say, how we talk. Do we have any kind of self-control over the words we speak? We can control what we speak, he says. You can begin to control your whole life. Don't let it condemn you, though, if you do this on the way home, because John tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, right? And so we need to be forgiven and we need to confess, but then move on and saying, God, help me. Help me to, to see that that person that I just yelled at is made in God's likeness we just read in James. My brothers, this should not be. Now, getting back to Matthew 16, though, what happened here with Peter, it's kind of, you know, for Jesus, it's kind of sounding familiar, right? You see, Satan used a tactic like this back in the temptation, right? In Matthew chapter 4, we we saw that a long time ago where he was saying, you don't need to do what you think you need to do. You don't need to go the way of the cross. You need to just do what I say. And it says the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to Jesus, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Very similar kind of answer, you know, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus says to Satan himself, away from me, Satan. I, it's interesting, you know, when you think about what Jesus is doing here, and, and I, think, I think there's a seriousness and there's a, a boldness, too, that I think you and I can maybe learn from in terms of, of facing things that are wrong. We kind of want to dance around with them a little bit, play games. Well, I'll think about that or whatever. Jesus was very clear. He said, no, get behind me, Satan. I don't want to go that route. And I think in spiritual warfare, you and I need to be a little more serious and a little more resolute to fight the battles and fight them in the name of Jesus, not entertain the battle, but fight the battle in the name of Jesus and the, and the power of his blood, the blood that was shed for you and for me. Jesus told uh, Peter in these verses, he says, you're a stumbling block. Stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So we kind of have, you know, these things that we face in our lives over and over. The things of God are the things of men. Worldly wisdom or godly wisdom. Where do we find the wisdom of God? How do you and I know it? Through God's word, if we don't know what God's word says, we're not going to have a clue. We're going, to, we're going to be just going on what we think we know, what we want, what this is, you know, part of the worldly wisdom that is, is common today. But I, I found it interesting, I had this thought about this, that, you know, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Then he talks about you have in mind the things, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And it seems to be kind of like the things of men have more in common with Satan, obviously, than the things of God. You know, some of the, the, the principles of men, they're, they're not all just from men. They, you know, some of them, and we, we, talk, we read about it in other places, you know, that there's doctrines of demons and, uh, you know, the world system that, that is set up and the, the, the God of this world has a part in a, a lot of the way uh, things are, are set up. But you and I need to know that God has a way that is not man's way. Isaiah 55, the classic scriptures, and I'll read it for you, says that that my thoughts, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's a huge, huge difference. But again, how do we know what God's ways are and God's thoughts but but to go into His Word? So so back here in Matthew, we see the things of God were the, the things of the cross. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is what He came to do. Peter had it right about who He was, but he did not have it right about what He came to do. The cross, for you and I to bow before the cross. Jesus, uh, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, you know, he, 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 he just decided, you know, he wasn't going to talk about anything. Or the most important thing would be Jesus Christ and him crucified. He determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Of course, he talked about a lot of things, but that was his, his main goal. So why don't we close with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's turn there and we will close there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verse 1. It says, Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. Which makes it very important, right? What is this gospel that he's talking about? He says, by this you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Hold on to these truths, in other words. And then he tells us what it is here in verse 3. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he talks about all the different people he appeared to. First importance. I passed on to you what was of first importance. This gospel is by, by which we're saved. The gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. He came to his disciples. He said, listen, this is what's going to have to happen. They didn't understand it. Peter obviously got uh, messed up with it. But I, looking back now, now that we know the truth and his word, I'm so thankful for his plan. God help us to follow his ways, not the ways of man, not the ways of the world, but of the, but of the, the true and living God. Not the God of this world. It's a it's a another whole plan. We're going to talk more about that next week in the second half of this. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm also thankful to say that Peter got it right later on in 1 Peter. He says these words, he wrote these words, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. He got it right in the end. Let's pray together, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. It was an act of love. Love that this world could not even imagine, could not even fathom But you sent your Son. And so this morning, Lord, we, we have taken this time to simply look at the cross and the resurrection of your Son Jesus and that by it we have hope, by it we have life. Lord, we know it was not an easy thing. And when we get to the end of the gospel, we'll go through the, the agony of the whole process that took place. But yet it was because you loved us. May we understand. May we keep ourselves in the love of God. May we always, always, always keep the cross close by. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for sending your son. We bow our hearts and lives before him. In Jesus' name, amen.